Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello everyone, Stakuyi here, and I'm actually not joined by Gabby. Uh, for those of you who are watching this on YouTube right now, I'm actually joined by Anamarki, which, wait, that's how I would say it, right? Anamarki? Anamarki, like, yes. Okay, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself here for those who have not, uh, not encountered you here before? Hi, I'm Anamarki History. I do gaming reactions to historical games. I do history videos, long-form documentaries, which is probably one I'm more famous for. And I also cover current military conflicts. I'm a military historian. That's what I focus on. I do Ukraine and it looks like maybe Venezuela at the <laughs> like, moment. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, you have no idea. The next video that I'm working on here for geopolitics is specifically what's going on uh, between Guyana and uh, Venezuela. Are you doing the same thing? Well, I thought about it looking at a breakdown of the current military capability of Venezuela. But then I keep thinking, uh, I need to have a chat with my mate Perrin about it because he might be doing one of his uh, epic slideshows. So I don't want to step on his toes. So I'll have to check if he's doing it. Um, oh, man. <laughs> but yeah, I'm sort of interested as to what the play is because, you know, the Venezuelan Air Force and it's like clapped out crew of like 20 F-16As from the 1970s, uh, how they're going to match up against the mighty Swedish Gripen from, uh, from Brazil. That'd be uh, interesting to watch. Uh, I I'd say that it would be uh, probably uh, uh, packed particles of uh, a new variant of Pervitin. It, <laughs> it, it, it's called cocaine. Oh, ah. Yeah, yeah. You know, they'll, they'll just get it across the border. They'll just get it across the border from Colombia and, you know, they'll utilize that. Who that, needs that's, that's brakes? Yeah. Who needs brakes when, you know, you got the power of trucks to fuel your jet pilots? Yeah. I mean, look, look, I, I, I was looking at a map of Venezuela and Guyana, the disputed area the other day. There's literally no logistical infrastructure there. So, if I was going <laughs> to launch a land invasion as Venezuela, uh, powering my troops through Colombian Bam Bam is probably the way to go. That is probably how I'm going to do it. Thing is, they're probably there's not going to be a massing of the troops here when they're looking at it. For, like, I know this is a little bit of, I guess, a spoiler going into all this for people who are probably going to be looking at the video that's going to end up being made on this. But the entire thing, like across the entirety of the border, it's just straight like Amazon. That's all yeah. that it is, right? It's what straight Amazon. <laughs> And so the issue is, yes, as you said, there's no infrastructure. So what they're going to end up doing is it's going to be a thing of, I'm pretty sure, setting up like settlements and other things. You know, it's going to be an action almost like China trying to go and create artificial islands, but claiming the territory of, you know, just pushing people into it as settlers to actually reclaim that parts just so that they can then send their Navy around to claim the actual valuable territory that they immediately want, which is going to be the rich offshore oil resources. Because oh, that's, that's what, what it really is. Want. 
That's what they really want. Uh, well, look, um, if you had told me, if you had told me that a real life, the real life version of Mercenaries 2 from the Xbox 360 was going to happen, I would, I would not have believed you. I would not have believed you, but we might, we might get a live action adaption of Mercenaries 2, guys. It'll be great. Everything Black in recent history is just making me think of like Metal Gear Solid as it just advances. Or like war has changed. Contract arm, or wait, no, it's like what contract? Uh, no, it's ID tag soldiers with ID tag weapons. And then with like uh, private military corporations fighting one another. It's just, I don't even know how I'm going to look back on this in like 10, 15 years. I just love the fact that Henry Kissinger dies and South America explodes. It's like the <laughs> universe. It's like the universe is just like, right, now is the time. <laughs> he can't stop us now. His spirit won't be able to do anything. The Monroe Doctrine intensifies. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. It's going to be great. My veteran friends are like, oh, finally, we get to invade a tropical country. Let's go. It's oh, yeah, been yeah. desert for the past 30 years. It's still going to be hot as hell. The difference is this one is wet instead of dry. And Marky, you said that your specialty primarily deals with, um, like, it's World War II and in general military history, you said, right? Yeah, military history. It's what I went to the big fancy school for to get no money for. So, yeah, there you go. What do you, well, you say no money? You're doing this now, you know? And what's more lucrative than being a YouTuber and dedicating hours upon hours upon hours for a risky chance of something perhaps possibly <laughs> doing well you know, on the fickle I, internet? I should, have, I should have gone into STEM with my crap math scores aside and just done that instead. But it's, it's the old stereotype. It's funny. I was in a class of, like, so many budding historians and I'm the only one of us actually doing history for a living. Everyone else is like teaching or an administrative job. It is, it is what it is. <laughs> no, I totally understand that. In, in I, for anyone who has not heard of anything that I've done, because I know I've made shorts and talked about it in the past for what it is that I did immediately after graduating college. You know what I did? I worked as a beer distributor, like a beer merchandiser. So I, it was my job to get off trucks and load beer in grocery stores like to deliver them inside. That's what I did with my degree. And then immediately after that, uh, I got fired because once winter rolled around, there was no need for it because beer sales dropped. So I got fired. I then got a job as an internet salesman, like a call-in internet salesman from a call center. And then when I left that job voluntarily to go to another one that was logistics for TQL, total quality logistics, which I'm never going to recommend that job to anyone, by the way, it's total shit. But either way, I did that. And then I started up a business from that that was selling um, or transporting used and recycled goods. Do you know who the number one purchaser of used and recycled goods in the world is? Actually, no. It's China. Do you know what happened with the United States and China in 2019? Uh, yeah, things went a little bit squiffy because of Verona and Old Mater. The uh, the man who must not be named with all those tariff laws and God knows what else. Yeah, the trade war completely destroyed any aspect of this little budding business that I had started with the company. So I got fired from that. And then I went to work for a laboratory. I worked in a laboratory and I started two months or three months prior to COVID. And then everything went to shit. So I got hired at a medical laboratory literally three months before a global pandemic broke out. Oh, God. Yeah, no, I can relate to that because same thing with me. 
I got like 99% through my degree. I was like almost there. Then my dad gets laid off and I'm like, well, okay, I have to go get a job now. So I ended up selling mobile phones, repairing mobile phones, doing that sort of thing, became a technician, started selling mobile phones, was one of the top sales reps in the country for my business. Damn. But I got fired. Why? Because I was also the uh, shop steward for the union. <laughs> oh. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was I was causing a bit of a ruckus because I saved a bunch of employees' jobs who they really wanted to get rid of because I would sit in on their meetings and negotiate for them. And uh, yeah, so they started auditing literally every one of my phone calls to find like one tiny little mistake I made, and then got rid of me. Use it as an infraction, get rid of you. God damn, that's yep. stupid. Yep. Well, then speaking of stupid things, what I figured might be a fun thing to talk about then today is to go into uh, dumb military events and stories. Because I figured that, you know, with your knowledge of military history, there is nothing that perhaps is more wasteful and stupid in this world sometimes than a war. Because oh, that- the, it is the single dumbest, it is the single dumbest thing humanity does. It yeah. is the single dumbest thing humanity does. It's, the way I describe war, it is, it is the ultimate expression of humanity. And when people get really upset when I say that, but the way I sort of describe it is war is the only place where you find the absolute best traits of humanity, like bravery, honor, self-sacrifice, and the absolute worst, uh, genocide, mass murder. You have no, it's, that is quite literally the, almost the exact same as what I have been telling people for literally years. I, yeah. I, my, I am on record here from all my varying classes and people, you, this used to piss people off because I went to a, like a small liberal arts college. And so oh, when yeah. I, I still remember telling people in this, oh yeah, no, like you see the, like uh, the war was the greatest point of humanity. And because in, during war, you will see the best and the worst. You will see the most developments. You will see the most developments from, from military technology, from infrastructure, from societal developments, from literally every single aspect that happens during a conflict where the rate of growth of humanity skyrockets, but then it's like treading a fine line because it can easily destroy itself at the same time. It is, you see the worst. And you want to know what's really annoying about it? Military historians in general, and we, we cop a lot of shit. And the reason we do is because we have that focus and that love for that very sort of like humanity pushing the limits. And like, it's, it's kind of, it sounds really horrible, but it is kind of like the sports effect in a very similar way where it is the ultimate competition. Like human beings are competing with one another with their very lives, like their civilization online. They right? are. So it's the, it's the ultimate expression of what humanity is capable of for good or evil depending on the circumstances, right? You try and explain that, and then you will get, if you went to a liberal arts college, you'll get this. The sociology and cultural historians will oh come along God. and be like, and they'll be like, oh, you, you filthy guys, you, you like these barbaric men smashing each other with swords. You're inferior to my study of, uh, I don't know, uh, transformative, transformative liberal arts in the 17th century. It's so much more interesting. You're just a peasant who, who likes wars. Or you get called a fascist. All the, yeah. Like. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't want to bring politics on this podcast, but it's just like, you have no idea how tough it is being a left-wing military historian. It's really hard. <laughs> it is really hard. Because on the one hand, you'll be like, 
I'll try to talk to my friends and people who are aligned politically with me. I mean, I've got the JCP flag behind me, right? I'll try and talk to them, and they'll be like, oh, yeah, but literally all the people you study and research are like evil monsters, right? And I'm like... Yo, you mean humanity? Yeah. Well, well, yeah welcome welcome yeah, to history. Yeah. The amount of times. Yeah. The, the, you have no idea how many times across very different things for platforms, no one has a beat on what I am politically, and that's going to stay that way. I have made it a point, a point of pride that... Even though I cover stuff for like geopolitics, I will never actually tell anyone what it is that I believe politically in any situation. Like I will make fun of communism. I will make fun of fascism. I will make fun of all the varying different ideologies of any kind of extremity, but I will never tell people what it is that I actually think on anything because it is not my place to tell people what they should think. I can only tell people about the stupid stories of what people have done in the past that has ruined shit. You're smart because I just fight people on Twitter. <laughs> so uh speaking of the yeah. stupid things do you have a particular favorite dumb event like is there one that you know off the top of your head of just something that has like happened with military history because i got several that i know that have have happened whether it's involving a vehicle some kind of stupid invention or or some kind of action that was really dumb mm -hmm. okay so i'm gonna cheat a little bit because I have a I have a magnum opus project, as they say, running that I've been writing for like four, four or five months now. It's actually no longer than that, six months. It was something I referenced. There's a bit of a story behind this, and it's become a bit of a meme in my community because I've been saying I'll do it, and I haven't done it yet, and people are whinging about it. Hey everyone, it's you here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices... You're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, so there is the Russian fighter jet, the Su-57. Yes. I'm sure, sure we're aware of that. Now, Alex Hollings, who's a great creator on TikTok and other, on YouTube here as well, he does Air Power and the Air Power podcast. He's really cool. He's talked at length about the Su-57, as have a bunch of other people. But I wanted to do one of my customary massive deep dives on it. Mm -hmm. Problem was, I was like, okay, but as with everything in military history, despite all the crap we got for it, to understand military history, you have to understand everything else about society. Correct. And to do that, I had to explain how the Soviet aviation industry got into such a bad state that it transferred over to the Russian one, which is why the Su-57 is such a piece of crap. Mm -hmm. Right? It's terrible. Like, the F-22 would eat this thing. Like, completely eat this thing, just despite what they say. Oh, yeah. And you're already, and now that I've said that, and because I'm here, you're now going to get a bunch of angry Russian fanboys in the comments. <laughs> so, 
I so I I talk about this and I was like, okay, I'm gonna have to explain this. So I started writing a script, but I realized to explain why I had to talk about the history of the Soviet aviation industry, which meant I had to go all the way back and start with the start of the Soviet aviation industry mm -hmm. and the problems with the structure of Soviet aviation design and development, which meant I had to talk about the origins of uh, you know communist Russia and all that sort of thing. And eventually, my you know ten thousand word breakdown of the Su fifty seven. Uh, turned into 14 pages of Soviet aviation history, and I haven't even finished the World War II segment, right? And so I'm like, okay, yep. it's going to be have to be three videos. So let's talk about the absolutely monstrous story that not many people heard of, because you hear a lot about the SC-57. You hear a lot about the MiG-25. Yes. Must did a video on that. The MiG-25 was a bit funny, which resulted in the F-15. But there is a better story. So I am going to tell you the grand and wonderful story of the Sylvansky IS. Oh, boy. Now, the IS stands for Yosef Vissarionovich Stalin, as we know, because if you want to get in the good books and you're in Soviet Russia in the 1930s, you got to name everything after the big man. All right. Now, basically, you have three major design bureaus in the Russian aviation industry at this point. Mm -hmm. You have Tupolev. You have Ilushin. And you have Polycarpov, right? Three big ones. You also have a couple of up-and-comers. You have uh, Lavoshkin, you have Yakovlev, and you have Artyom Mikoyan. Uh, Artyom Mikoyan and Antony Garevich would form this little company called MIG. You might have heard them. Uh, they, they, never. They'll, they'll never. show up. They'll show up somewhere. You also have Sukhoi. He's kicking about somewhere working for Tupolev, I think, at this time. Anyway, you've got all this core of designers. Into this arena steps a man, a legend, a god of aviation design, a fresh graduate from the Tomansky Aviation School, right? He is, a, he is a legend, a man without comparison. He is Mr. Silvansky. All right? All right. Now, Mr. Silvansky is a very, very interesting guy. I have to get his full name here. Uh, Alexander. Alexander Silvansky. Now, he had graduated from the Moscow Aviation Industry uh, Institute uh, and Tomansky Engines, right? That's who he comes from. He, he graduates from there, but here's the thing. He's married to the daughter of the Defense Appropriations Minister Kaganovich, right? And like with everything in the Soviet Union, you've got two ways of doing things. You'll either get appointed by the government after winning a government contract, or as they say in the business, you know a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy, right? Yep. And he knows Kaganovich. So he goes to Kaganovich and he's like, buddy, my guy, listen, I'm the greatest aviation designer to come out of this school. <laughs> and I'm going to build something incredible. So... Jagadov is just like, hey boss, this guy, he's great. He's my son-in-law. He's awesome. Hire him. So they do. And they create the Sylvansky Design Bureau. Now, problem, it doesn't exist. Sylvansky Design Bureau doesn't exist. There's no staff. There's no factory. Nothing. It's just a name on paper that represents him. That's it. Yes, literally that. So he uses his father-in-law's influence to get himself a factory. Brilliant. Fine. We've got a place to build this thing. Problem. I now have to go and get engineers to build this thing. So 
he tries to get engineers. Problem, it's not a capitalist system because funnily enough, having a market where you can compete and get things like where people run things themselves is really good at getting engineers going. What does the Soviet Union not have? <laughs> <laughs> so there's only a bureaucracy there. And so what he needs to do, he can't go exactly up, he can't go to Polikarpov or Yakov Lev or anyone and go like, hey, bro, you want to close down your institute and come work for me instead? He can't do that. No. And he can't, he can't cherry pick their engineers. So he's only got one option. He finds the engineers from the design bureaus that have already failed because they haven't worked. <laughs> and he has to go cherry pick their engineers. So he goes around, goes around all the failed design bureaus in the Soviet Union and assembles a crack team of legends who have been fired from all the other design bureaus. And it's like, boys, we're going to build this plane. So they get the uh, AM-82 radial, which is the, uh, is it AM? Uh, sorry, Soviet designation is weird. That's fine. It's basically a, it's a right cyclone engine that's built under license. Uh, M-82, the M-82 Shestov, Shestoklov, mm-hmm. M-82. Anyway, early model yet, or early model still in the early teething stages. They haven't developed it into the one that would go into the LA-5. Anyway, for you aviation nerds out there, I got you. Anyway, they got this radial engine, and they're like, okay, we're going to need to build a shell around it. The problem is they haven't got any aviation experience properly. They've only got this guy who's basically, he's basically got the bachelor's degree equivalent of aviation design. He's not even like, he hasn't got a master's. He hasn't got a PhD. He hasn't got any practical experience in a factory. He's just set this up. So he sets out, sets up this design bureau, gets all the rejected engineers from everywhere else where he couldn't find anything, uses his father-in-law's influence to get in the funding, calls this thing the Yosef Stalin, and then gets to building it around this engine. Problem. Soviet industry is Soviet industry. So there's a backlog on the engine. So they have to get the earlier model, the one that's not designed. Yeah, because everything okay. is everything is part of the command economy. It has to be. It's specifically, unless you know another guy within the production line that can get something further ahead, you're stuck behind that massive backlog. So yeah, it's, yeah. you know, the set price, whatever, it, but years behind. Yep, exactly. And because of the great purge and uh, charges of wrecking, which is just starting to kick off at this time, uh, everyone's producing older models of stuff that they can make more of to meet their quotas. So the develop- research and development and actual production of the engine they need for this thing is behind schedule. So they have a less powerful engine. Problem is, this engine is a big radial, based on the right cyclone, also has a very large reduction gear, which means it needs a large propeller, it's got a lot of torque. There's a bunch of technical engineering details which I won't bore you guys with, but point is, he has to build this thing, and it looks like a giant I-16. I'll see if I can find a photo for you. I'll drop it in the chat that you can put in at this point. But this thing, like, the only way they can get it to work is basically to build a massive variant of the I-16. For those of you who have played War Thunder, you See, the you I-16 was the, it had a massive chunky front to it. I think I remember this. Yeah, yeah, it had a massive chunky front to it. So all because of the way he oh, set this up. I remember this thing. <laughs> I remember this yeah. thing because in Hearts of Iron 4, this is one of the base planes that you have at the very beginning of the game. Like, I remember this, the I-16. Yep. So this is the Sylvansky IS. It's basic, It's very similar to an I-16, just with a enclosed cockpit bolted to it. <laughs> and because, as you can see, the proportions of this aircraft, the aerodynamics of it, he's got this massive wing. He's got this really short, stubby fuselage, this massive tail and empennage section. 
and he's got this massive engine calendar. So this thing has the aerodynamics of a brick. <laughs> okay. It's got an underpowered radial. They don't have the radial they actually need. And it's got the aerodynamics of a brick. So it's like, okay, no issue. We need this thing to outperform the I-16, though, otherwise there's no point to building it. So it needs to have the same arm armament. So it's got two cast machine guns and two Shvac 20mm cannons. Okay. We need all the ammo for this and more ammo than the I-16. Okay. And then they've got a design team, which is scraped together from all the people who got kicked out of all the other design teams. So when they actually build this thing, the measurements are in two different sets and the building construction and everything is off the number. What do you mean that the Everything measurements are in two numbers. different sets? Some of, like some of it was in metric, some of it was imperial. That's why the it's the, the Soviet system. system. They shouldn't have been exactly, exactly. There's there's a bunch of different shit going on because they're using foreign parts. They're oh using my American god, because most of the stuff was being imported already. For yes, yes, and so you've got all this different shit happening, and so eventually, when they built this thing, the wheelbase is too short, so the wheel legs are not long enough. And the actual, where the gear's lined up and all the measurements and jigs they've done, all it's built, the gear can't retract because they've made the gear legs too short. And at the same time, the wheelbase and the wheel wells where the wheels sit up into are too wide. And so what's happened is you can't retract the gear because the gear gets stuck up against the fuselage. So the gear is sort of like hanging in like a V formation. Like imagine the gear is only retracted 45 degrees because it can't get in. But because the wheel legs are too short, and because they've got that massive radial with the reduction gear, the prop is too big and the blades are too long. Oh. So the so the propeller is digging into the ground. The propeller is digging into retract. the ground. And so Silvansky, and Silvansky hasn't been watching any of this, by the way. He hasn't been doing any of this. Because he's not an aircraft designer, he's actually a politician masquerading as an aircraft designer. Mm -hmm. So he's been spending all his time in Moscow sucking up to the big cheese, sucking up to Stalin and, and his father-in-law like, hey guys, I'm building this great plane. It's going to be fucking amazing. It's going to be so cool. You guys should come to my factory and see it sometime. Hey, you know what? You want to invest in me? Give me a couple of those rubles down my way, bro. It's going to be sick. This is going to be great. And here's the point. They haven't, they've done all this and then the aircraft can't take off because the props too long. So what does he do? Dolvansky comes down from Moscow and he's like, hey, why isn't my plane flying? Bro, you fucked up the measurements. This thing's too long. He goes to the cabinet. He goes to the tool cabinet in the, in the hangar workshop, gets a freaking saw, and saws the end of the propeller blades off till it clears. I mean, it's not going to smack the ground cracking it. At least. <laughs> at least. Yeah. Yeah. So you're not generating enough, enough thrust now because you don't have enough, a big enough propeller. It's not going to work properly. Plus, you've thrown the balance of the propeller off, so it's going to vibrate. Anyway, well, now we've got this far. It's an airplane. needs to fly. So they get a test pilot in it. They taxi it out. It's vibrating, shaking everywhere. <laughs> the props don't pick it up. It's all going. This thing is rattling around. Completely unstable. It's completely unsafe. They taxi it to the runway, and they go for a long takeoff run. They do not get anything like enough lift. What's happened? Because they've had to use the weaker model of engine, um, and because they've cut the propeller off and done all that crap, guess what? Not enough thrust, not enough lift. So, what do we do? Well, let's take all the ammo out. I mean, it's a fighter, <laughs> but we don't need ammo. Like, why not? So, 
So they take half the fuel out, the, half the ammo out, they come back, and they're like, all right, it can get airborne now. <laughs> you just find a jockey, you know? Don't get a pilot, just get a horse jockey, you know? Half the weight, maybe they went through the, uh, the Holdemore. I'm sure there's plenty of starving Ukrainians that you could throw into there now. Yeah, 100%. You, know, you, don't need a, you don't need a pilot who's actually, you know, big enough to, you know, strong enough to control. I mean, nutritional standards in the Soviet Union in the 1930s are questionable at best, so, I mean, why not? <laughs> so, you, you say they get, they get this guy into the plane and he takes off. The moment he gets airborne, he pulls for the gear to retract. Oh. The gear gets 45 degrees and jams up against the wheel wells because they're not big enough and not placed correctly. And so now there's like 30 knots of drag from the landing gear just pushing up against it. There's, there's no airflow. The landing gear is just causing all this drag. <laughs> the propeller is not long enough and they've sorted off. It's like bodged in. So it's vibrating everywhere. It's uh, what you've essentially created at that point, considering how slow it is, you, they've created a less relaxing skyborne massage chair. It sounds like. Yeah. 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 He's, he's shaking around. Like, oh my God. You can see my double chin. It's giving me added effect. Just <laughs> shaking around. And then he does one lap of the airfield. He lands. Um, he gets the gear back down. He lands. The gear almost collapses because it's not set properly. And he, and he freaking ground loops and skits across the airfield. The pilot gets out, walks over to Sylvansky, and he's like, I refuse to get back in that fucking thing. So they get another test pilot who tries to fly it, and he actually almost crashes and burns. And so his solution is, all right, well, fine. We'll get the proper engine. Okay. So yeah, the proper the, engine the is solution is to do the thing that was supposed to happen in the first place. Got it. Got it. So they try fixing it. They try fixing it. They put the new engine in. Problem is, they were forced to rechange their design to fit the old engine, the one that didn't work. So they've tried to fit the new one engine, and again, they fucked up the measurements and everything else, so they can't fit the new engine with the cowling and the aerodynamic shell and everything. So Sylvansky gets out there himself, again, with a hammer, and just pounds the fairing into shape <laughs> around the new engine. And they try again, and this thing has the same, it's a little bit faster, it can compensate, but the vibrations are now damn near impossible. Hey, the thing is like you, you can't up. say at this point that he did not construct the aircraft because it's certainly, like, the man, the man took a hammer to metal. He constructed the aircraft <laughs> one way or another. They do another test flight. The guy lands. It still can't carry, it's still not powerful enough or fast enough to carry the ammo. <laughs> he just lands. Almost ground looping again. He very nearly dies in the landing because it because like the landing gear almost collapses. He pulls up, gets out, and the test pilots unionize. In the Soviet Union under Stalin, the test pilots unionize and they call it, and I quote, a bad heap of shit. <laughs> and they fundamentally refuse to fly the airplane. Is this, is that, do they have a quote here. of that? Like there is a documented record yes. of them saying it is a yes. bad piece of yes. shit? And you want to know what's better? After this happened, um, Sylvansky was fired. How he didn't get gulagged and killed, I don't know. Sylvansky was fired. Kaganovich was disgraced and got in the shit with Stalin for a bit. Uh, and the prototype, the surviving prototype, was actually taken to Moscow Aviation Institute, where he graduated from, and it was put there as a student example of how not to design an aircraft. <laughs> like, they went to his old alma mater. They went to his alma mater stuck his plane there and said, you see, boys, this is how you don't build an airplane. This is a heap of shit. Oh, <laughs> my God. Yeah. 
Yeah, this is <laughs> oh, the absolute <laughs> the only equivalent of anything. And I don't even have an actual example to bring that up. I can. I, I haven't heard of someone doing to that precise degree before. I've heard people referencing things when it comes to like in the modern day and age with apps, you know, where there are apps that students have designed that end up being like, you know, horrible failures or other things or like scams or something else get brought up within like tech schools or like, you know, some of those graphic design schools of like how not to do something. Uh, but I've never seen that happen with an aircraft. With a full plane. No. no. Um, I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? <laughs> you get the goofiest game in history, Queen's Podcast. Hi, I'm Nathan. And I'm Katie. And we're the host of Queen's Podcast. Join us while we spill the tea on women from history. We get into all kinds of stories here, like biographies of lesser known figures. For instance, Saida Haltura, powerful pirate queen. To the stories you might already know, like Marie Antoinette or Cleopatra, but with a fun twist. Each queen is paired with a cocktail that'll totally get you in the mood to hear fun, juicy, and dramatic stories from history. Because history is so much more than just dudes on a battlefield, and we believe that the female perspective and roles are just as deserving of their time in the spotlight. Right. So come get to know these queens. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers. So I want to apologize to the viewers. I got it wrong. Uh, I got my, I got the engines mixed up. The AM82 McKeelan is for the IL2 and the mix. Oh, congratulations. I mean, this is going yeah, on YouTube. I mean, You're going to have corrections in there from the very yep. beginning when this goes out. I, uh, yeah. I checked my script. And I'm like, you, you idiot. I mean, come on, guys. It's the morning. I'm like, time zones are a bitch. <laughs> Time zones are a bitch. We have been trying to set this up for literal months. Yeah. And it's it's finally it's finally the last happened. time I communicated with, so you, th with you what for, for this, I think it was June or July. Yeah, yeah. And it's December. I mean your trip to Japan you. was pretty cool though. Oh yeah, yeah. There's the Japan trip and then uh <laughs> here's the funny thing. Um so I, I leave for Florida because I have family that lives in Florida. So I leave there in like a week and a half. Uh a week after I get back from Florida, I'm going to Austria. Yeah, I got some work that I'm going to be doing out there. Uh, once I finish the whole thing with Austria, six weeks after that, and this one is not work that I'm going to be doing. I'm I'm doing a. I, I promised my daughter that when she turned five years old, because she's always been begging to go on the trips with us when we're doing these varying things for work, she's never been able to go. So I promised her that I would take her on a trip. We're going to take her to uh, Disneyland Paris. So we're actually going to take her there for her birthday. So we're going to do that. But then after that. I got another business trip to Italy, and then I got another business trip that summer to Peru. 
God damn, you're moving. <laughs> I know, right? You're moving. I fly for fun, and I don't fly that much. Good lord. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's rough. But that's the tale of the Sylvansky IS. That is one of the dumbest things. I that know. is way longer of an extended story than I normally anticipate, because I do dumb events in history all the time. In fact, that's my favorite part of history. I loved conflict. I love military things. Of course I do. But my favorite things to study are dumb events in history and just how stupid shit can happen. Like, I, I've told this story before for like, especially on shorts content, but I, I'm going to ask you, have you heard of the Dublin whiskey fire? No, actually. Okay. So I'm going to get into a whole military thing because I know that a lot of people who are tuning into this right now, it's going to be literally just dumb military events. That's, and I have a whole Russian one here that I wanted to tell you about as well, which I'm sure you already have heard because that, that seems to be a specialty that you're aware of. But in the case of the Dublin whiskey fire, right, back in the late 1800s, there was a whiskey distillery in Dublin, Ireland that caught fire. And it was, it was a terrible tragedy for the Irish because 5,000 yeah, barrels of whiskey went up in flames and exploded. Because, of course, this is concentrated whiskey. I mean, that, that's, the, that's an alcohol that's going to burn, right? Oh, yeah. It'll burn. So these pressurized kegs explode in a literal flaming river of alcohol that is flowing down through the streets of Dublin. And can you guess what happens? People. Well, the Irish will try and drink did. it. People lined up for over a mile to go and drink it with every kind of tin, every cup, hat, anything that could be used to store liquid. They did. Now, mind you, at the entire time that this point is happening, it is alcohol that is on fire. It is actually on fire as this is happening. And they're trying to stop it because as it's flowing down through the streets, you know how those cobbled streets, how they're, they rise up kind of in the middle and then they go down to the side for the divots that happens from carts. So they're, it's flowing yeah, yeah. down through the side, but because of the way it's structured, there is no drains. That, that's not a thing. So it's not <laughs> heading into a sewer. It's not going anything like that. It's just running down through the street. And so they try to stop it so that it doesn't go off onto the side in people's houses. And the first thing that they try to use there is manure because they have large piles of manure everywhere. So they are scooping manure over onto the sides of the street to try and contain this literal <laughs> flaming river of alcohol. So now it is a flaming river of alcohol and shit, which it doesn't stop. It continues to go even as people are trying to drink out of it, right? That is still happening. And Ugh. so they, they finally end up stopping it to agree with large amounts of sandbags and things that get, that get piled up and poured mixed with manure and everything. <laughs> so it finally stops. And amazingly, amazingly that night, no one died in the fire. Nobody died. Yeah, people still died, but no one died in the fire. 13 people died of alcohol poisoning. <laughs> oh my God. To this day is perhaps one of the most, if you're talking about a stereotypical, like when people make fun of those, like suffer stereotypes of Irishmen online, that is probably one of the greatest examples that you could use of precisely the stereotype that people would make fun of. Oh yeah, 100%. The other one, I'm sure you're already aware of this. Do you remember the, uh, like, cause you've covered stuff with MIG and everything, right? Do you yes. remember in, in like the 1980s where a, a, a MIG fighter basically flew all across Europe on its own? Yes, the pilot ejected and the aircraft, he thought, he, he had a systems failure and he thought, oh, well, I better get out of my aircraft. He ejects. The aircraft, the aircraft just stays in level flight. It stays in level flight until it runs out of fuel and crashes into a house in Belgium. 
Which um, does kill a teenager. Yeah. That does happen. Yeah, it does. Yeah, the, the Soviet government was like, oh, oh, well, you better pay reparations for that. I would, that pilot, I, he's like, I got out of aircraft. Aircraft was obviously still flying, comrade. It is still going. West now has our latest weapon. No, not they would have found much. The MiG-23 uh, ML that they were flying was, um, mm, well, East German pilots had to build entire strategies around the fact that it couldn't land. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's not they, like they, it's a they, they dug in position you know you're here in the fucking sky yeah <laughs> so the the weird thing with the mig 23 is it's got this issue where they the the final version the mld i think it is the latest and greatest model v mig 23 that they designed they actually built a new flight control system everything for it they basically revamped the whole airframe from scratch and added an extra wing sweep position for the mig 23 to improve its maneuverability because originally the thing's turning capability was absolutely garbage. And so East German pilots basically worked out a way to do kind of similar to what the Phantoms did in Vietnam, where they would have flights of two and they would sort of crisscross. So one would group would commit, another group would commit. But yeah, the East German Air Force had to design an entire different group of like uh, battle strategies for their MiGs because their MiGs couldn't tell. Oh my God. Which is... Um, it's yeah, not good well, for, uh, for, I mean, for modern maneuverability. <laughs> No, which is why the F-15 is just such a devastating aircraft, especially after why they built it in response to the MiG-25. Is just the F-15 is just ridiculous. The F-15 <laughs> is almost like, in my opinion, it, it's kind of like the the initial case when the Zero, like the Japanese Zero, got first released onto the battlefield, yeah. and just the sheer degree of maneuverability. They had no armor whatsoever, so I mean, if it got hit, it was dead. Trouble was trying to hit the damn thing in the first place because of how maneuverable it was. So you mix that yeah. with a fucking jet fighter and you basically got the F-15 with a hell of a lot more teeth on it. Yeah, the, the F-15 has this wonderful capability of just raw power, raw power, excellent maneuverability. It's just the perfect sort of, it's dancing a knife edge, right? Because the F-16 is more maneuverable than the F-15 uh, in, in most situations. Not all of them, but in most situations. But the F-15 has just so much grunt and so much you know, weapons carriage capability, as well as the better, biggest, bigger radar, more space for stuff. Like the E model is absolutely ridiculous. So, I, you know, it, there's just so much you can do with the F-15. The only problem is the F-15 also comes with the price tag. At the time, it it was. Mm. Listen, American military I, I, I equipment and price tags are things that usually, like like in this case of a oh. lot of history, uh, ends up being a lot higher than you anticipate. <laughs> yeah. Look. Um, there was a great quote I saw actually today. I was reading through, um, reading through aviation history and sort of, because there was recently an accident with a, with a V-22 Osprey that crashed in Japan earlier today, the tilt rotor mm -hmm. helicopter. Uh, they were talking about safety in aviation and mishaps in the US Navy. And there was a quote from a Tomcat maintainer, an F-14 maintainer, who said, if safety was the Navy's priority, we would lock all our Tomcats in a hangar and lock people. <laughs> <laughs> Variable geometry wing aircraft are an absolute nightmare to maintain. Australia operated F-111s for Logistically, years the, the whole thing, thing the, the amount of complexity that goes into one of those in comparison to like a standard fixed wing aircraft is, is yeah. astronomical. Th that's the thing. Well, we talk about, this is what I talk about with Russia's current ongoing air campaign in Eastern Europe. <laughs> Can't use the actual yeah. word. Because YouTube is mean. But Russia's ongoing air campaign in Eastern Europe, 
the, the I look at the readiness rates for the US Air Force, and the US Air Force's B one, the bone, as it were, had at one point, I think in the mid in middle of the global war on terror, I think 2011, had like a readiness rate across the force of about 40%. And that's the US Air Force with that kind of budget. And the Russian bomber fleet right now with the their modern ones, not the TU-95s, but the uh, TU-22 backfires and the TU-160s, uh, if the US Air Force struggles with maintenance rates on swing-wing aircraft, I don't even want to know the issues that the Russians are having. I don't want to know what their force readiness is. Oh my God, no. I mean, we we know that... Well, um, speaking of MiG-25s, the biggest, cr- the biggest crux for them is their engines, because the engines are incredible, but they burn out really fast because they've just got so much raw power. Uh, and three or four, I think, MiG-31s have crashed in the Russian Air Force due to engine fires, engine malfunctions. Because of the air defense network that's going on in the conflict at the moment, they're just having to use the MiG-31 because it's got the uh, Russian equivalent of the American Phoenix missile, right? Because the air defense is set up so so well, they can't actually go into the enemy's airspace, so they have to stand off far <laughs> away. And the only fighter that has missiles big enough and powerful enough to actually hit enemy aircraft are the ones on their MiG-31s. And so they've been pushing their airframes to the limit. Oh, I get it. And that's the big issue. And that's the big issue with maintaining modern air forces is just the amount of wear and tear on engines and airframes is really, really bad, which is why the Russian Air Force has always, or Soviet Air Force and the Russian Air Force has always struggled in terms of like keeping a large number. When the Soviet Union existed, they had that critical mass of raw economic power that they could draw on. Not to mention that even as everything was being constantly developed, as soon as something started to kind of become a little bit outdated, well, I say that a lot of stuff ended up being outdated anyway, but they had a larger degree of sales capable things that were ready so that they could immediately then sell it. And at that time, India was an up and coming power. I say up and coming. It was industrializing rapidly and it's number one purchaser of arms. Like where it got all of its equipment from was the Soviet Union, basically. Yeah. So, I mean anything that they produced that they weren't going to use ended up either going to China. It ended up going into like Southeast Asia, like to you typically to India, but of course you had Cambodia, Laos and others, or it went down into like into the Balkans and like they always had someone to buy the shit now. Yeah. And, uh, ever since recent events took place in 2022, uh, the market for us arms and even surprisingly European arms, like stuff from Sweden, France and so forth, has skyrocketed and Russian export capability has declined significantly. Yeah, because it, it, they can't export it. It has to be used. It has to be used, and uh, even if it was, uh, no one wants to buy mm-hmm. it. The Chinese are starting to buy in-house now. And that's what's interesting. The SU-57 was supposed to have a partnership with India. And when India actually saw the designs for it, they pulled out of the project. <laughs> They're like, this thing's a heap of shit. We don't want anything to do with this. We'll build our own. Thank you very much. Oh my God. And that sounds like left. its own dumb event the of Indian, everything that is happening. Yeah, the Indian the Indian uh, Air Force is developing its own fifth generation fighter now because they took a look at the SU-57 and went, nah, this thing's a heap of shit. I don't want anything to do with it. They, they pulled out of the project. They just left. <laughs> like, the stealth's not going to work. 
The engines are from the SU-35. Correct me if I'm wrong in here. The reason the stealth doesn't even work is because they didn't put in like the proper panels, if I recall correctly. Was that it? Because it's like the panels don't fit the frame of it properly to where it it, it can't. It's even though it's a stealth fighter, it's not really stealth capable. Okay, so the U.S. Air Force has reclassified it. Um, It was originally going to be called stealth or low observable, Mm -hmm. right? they um they've since reclassified it i think to reduced signature which is like the step below yeah. stealth the us air force does not consider the sc57 stealth anymore um because uh, my only conclusion with that is because of the events in eastern europe they had awacs flying close to the border and the russians have probably done a field test of it and nato has gotten a good look at it and they saw it which tells me really all i need to know to be honest Fair enough. with you um, b- the biggest issue they have is uh, S- the Sukhoi Bureau actually did like a. Have you ever watched any of Russia's combat approved footage? Yeah, for stuff that uh, they put out there. Yeah, I've, I've yeah. seen some of the stuff. Yeah, they're like, this is the most advanced fighter aircraft in the world. <laughs> um, combat approved. Combat approved announcer. Uh, English announcer has their own fan club on non-credible defense it on Reddit. Sounds because oh, I've seen this stuff. It sounds as though it is an ad out of what you if you turned on the TV on like GTA Five. It sounds like that with the overly bombastic, very clearly fake, but it's totally saying it's real. Just presentation. Yeah, you know what it sounds like. It's a uh, um epic trailers or whatever. The guys who. Who do like the pa- the parody trailers for like games and so it's like in a world, yeah, it's like in a world where we actually have a functioning air force. <laughs> Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws, I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside 
The Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Um, yeah, so the combat approves, Sukhoi's bureau, like, designer came on and he was like, you see, we're doing the Russian, the Russian tradition of making the best with what we have. So we've only stealth the front half of our aircraft because that's what's going to be facing the enemy. It's the only part that needs to be stealth because that's what the radar is going to be looking at it. Like, oh yeah, cool. So what, there's a lot of issues with it, but basically there's stealthy features on the front, like the angles and such. It has a stealthy shape, right? Problems, number one, materials is a big problem, naturally. Well, they've been missing um, a lot of it. They just don't, they can't get access to a lot of stuff, which is why they've had to pull resources yeah. out of so many other industries to try and fix it. Yeah, and construction issues as well. Uh, even production model SU-57s have exposed rivets and paneling. So you can actually see the rivets connecting the panels to the aircraft mm. in modern in modern stealth aircraft. But there's one massive issue they have. What is that? And that is their current engines. Now, they're testing new engines right now. But when the Russians test a new engine, that means it's a decade away from production. Or if they rush it into production, it's going to catch fire, explode, and we're going to see like 15 SU-57s fall out. I mean, you don't have a modern equivalent, I guess, of sawing off a propeller. So (laughs) that's all you can do. Well, well, in in this case, they kind of do. Because what happened with the SU-57 was when they were building it, uh, there's an issue they have. One of the biggest radar cross-section returns that you can get is the intake mm-hmm. of an aircraft, right? Because you've got the fan, the fan blades inside spinning. And basically, when a radar hits the, hits the intake, it rattles around, the beam rattles around inside, rattles off the intake fans, and comes back. And so you have this massive RCS cross-section of the intake, mm-hmm. right? And so you can see it clear as day. So the way that the F-22, the F-35, and other low-observable aircraft, like the revamped, I think, I'm pretty sure the later models of Gripen have started trying, trying to work with this, they have what's called a serpentine intake. So what you have is you have the, the intakes of the engine sort of go around the side of the airframe and come back in and into the engine, mm-hmm. right? So what you have is when the air goes into the intake, there's radar-absorbent material, and the radar beam gets caught inside the intake and sort of disperse, disperses through the intake, so you don't get that return. Because the SU-57 is using the old engines from the, SU, from the SU-35, uh, which is an upgraded version of the engines from the SU-37, which is the Saturn, uh, the Saturn AM-31, I think? Don't quote me on that. Um, uh, Soviet engine designations <laughs> are a pain. Um, but... They're the old engines from the SU from the SU twenty seven and the SU thirty five, and so the SU fifty seven has these fan blades in full view, like the intake. Like there's just this massive, massive RCS on the front, and they tried to counter that. They put like sort of blockers in this sort of intake to try and fix the problem, but it hasn't really. And so to put it in perspective, uh, the United States Air Force when it's practicing against SU fifty sevens. When they're training to simulate SU-57s, they use US Navy F-18s because the US Navy F-18 has a similar radar cross-section estimate to the SU-57. So the US uses fourth-generation fighters to simulate the SU-57 in mm-hmm. exercise. But they brought the they brought the stealth fighter, the F-117, out of retirement 
to act as an aggressor for the Chinese stealth aircraft. So the Chinese are doing well. The Chinese are doing well. The J-20 Magnificent Dragon is shaving up to be... I mean, I've covered a lot of the stuff that has happened with China, to be fair, because they they are drastically improving. The the big problem that they have is that there's generally no innovation because almost everything that they do is a copycat of something else that they steal the tech off of. Yeah. Yeah, because they they don't have the... They don't... They're doing... They're rather, ironically enough, they're kind of doing what the Japanese did in the 19th century. It's a similar, similar principle. It's they don't have the uh, technology and industrial base needed to pursue high technology stuff. So they get the groundwork done from taking Western designs. And then from those copycats, they develop their own homegrown industry. China's actually doing rather well in shipbuilding. Shipbuilding's it's true they're doing well in shipbuilding because they got, they got what? three or was it four aircraft carriers that are currently in the process of being built but then i think from among terms of yeah. size each one of them is almost like half the size of one of the aircraft carriers so the latest the latest model of aircraft carrier that they're building is around two-thirds the size of a gerald ford class but it has all the features that the gerald ford mm-hmm. has so it has like electromagnetic catapult it has catapult it has um you know, arresting gear, it has, you know, elevators, large hangar space, it has all the modern features that a US carrier does. Uh, whereas previously, the Chinese Navy has been dependent on this, the old Soviet ski jump designs, as is India at the moment. But China and India and other major Asian powers are building their own homegrown yes. supercarriers or half, half-bait quasi-supercarriers because no one has the money like the US does for their boats. Um, but Russia needs to take its aircraft carrier, the Kuznetsov. They need to take it outside and <laughs> shoot it. They need to put it down like old Yellow, dude. They need to, they need to put this thing down, man. Like it, it is, it is old and it, and it's catching fire and it needs to stop. Oh my god! No, oh, dude, that that a friend of mine, history, uh, like he shares a name with your uh, podcast, actually. His channel is called Do, History of Everything. No, you have no idea how freaking ironic this is. Can I tell you a story real quick? When I looked at this. So yeah, sure. I'm not sure if it's, I don't think it's necessarily the same guy. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. When I was creating the history of everything podcast, right? I created the history of everything podcast and I had done so back in like 2021 is when I had done that. Yeah. Cause the podcast is almost like it's actually two years old here this month. Yeah. Um, so I created that back in 2021 uh, at the end of it. And when I had done this, I didn't create a YouTube channel for it until like six or seven months later in the summer. And when I was going to do it, I was looking up, oh, history of everything, because I didn't see anything that was listed for that. And then I go and I look on YouTube and I discover history of everything exists. And I look at it and go, what the fuck? This thing already exists. And, and, I, and I went and looked and there was no <laughs> videos posted. I think it was like there was not a single thing that was posted. Just someone created the username for it. And I was like, well, shit, now what the hell am I going to do? Okay, well, I guess I guess I just have to create it. I'm not the history of everything YouTube channel. I'm the history of everything podcast YouTube channel. And and then lo and yep. behold, I check on it like six, seven months later, after I've already made my channel and started making stuff for it. Now there's videos that are being posted to it. I'm like, are you kidding me? It wasn't silent. So that that's it's the same guy. <laughs> yeah, he's a mate of mine. He's from uh he's from the east coast of Australia. He is a really good dude, and he has a whole video on the Kuznetsov. He has a series called The Russian Navy yeah, I've Stuff. I've seen that. That's popped up. And, uh, Do you have any idea how yeah. many people message me thinking that he is me? Or I guess I am him? 
<laughs> it's created some confusion in here. I actually I, had to let my management team know from my history page because we got straight up confusements from advertisers that were looking us up and like, this isn't your channel. What are you talking about? <laughs> I should invite you to his Discord. Oh my god. <laughs> I'll invite you. You can have a you can sort you can sort this out the old way. <laughs> uh, field of honor. No, so we were talking about dumb We were. Things. There I, was um I think I got two more in here. I'm not sure if you have any uh, yourself, but I know off the top of my head, uh, um, there was a case where back around, like when World War II is ending, you know how Brazil entered into the conflict real late? So yeah, yeah, yeah. they wrecked house in Italy, but they also accidentally wrecked house at home because they at one point destroyed one of their own ships in an accident. Oh, you, you have heard of this in here. Okay. You... Tell the story. Okay, Tell so the for story. those of you who are not aware, Brazil was a part of World War II, uh, though they didn't do necessarily nearly as much. They really only participated when it came to stuff with Italy, but they were went in pretty hard when it came to specifically attacking yeah. Italy. Don't really know why, but they did it. Either way, so there was a, a I think it was a cruiser or was it a destroyer? Pretty sure it was a cruiser. I think, I think yeah. it's a cruiser. So it was a yeah. cruiser called the, uh, the Bahia, and this was something that had been stationed in Brazil because they were trying to protect convoys because, you know, the Germans were convoy raiding all across the Atlantic here at this time. And they were practicing, uh, like they were doing some drills against like anti-aircraft stuff, you know, like, you know, being able to shoot stuff out of the sky. And the way you can't really practice that without, you know, having a target that is in the sky. So you can use balloons, you can use kites, you can use dummy aircraft, these kinds of things, but you're, no one's going to want to use a dummy aircraft at this time because you could still get shot out of the sky. So they are practicing with another ship that is moving ahead of them using a kite and that kite is up in the air and the anti-aircraft guns are, are firing at it to try and hit it, you know, cause it's a moving target, not really as fast as what an actual aircraft would do, but you know, you got to take what it is that you can get. Yeah. You take what you can get. Over the course of this exercise, what happened is that one of the gunners on the Bahia accidentally went and shot a round that I don't know how the hell they were aiming up in the sky and managed to do this, but it managed to hit a container that had, not in container, but it managed to hit a depth charge on the other ship yep. that was dragging the kite. Yep. But it wasn't just a single depth charge. The way that they had these stored was they were all like right next to each other rows. So it was the equivalent of hitting like the magazine and the- They blew the back half of the ship <laughs> off. They blew just the back half of the <laughs> ship off. It just, they hit one depth charge, and depth charges are mounted in a rack that dispenses mm -hmm. depth charges in patterns, which are set by the bridge. They fired, and it hit the depth, and it it caused a chain react. It blew the back half of the boat off. It just went. The ship had like three hundred people on it, and only like yeah a dozen or so survived, and that's it. Yeah, it blew the whole ship up, guys. We are going to have to end things. I know it's a little bit of a quicker episode, especially since we got started a little bit later than I probably anticipated. But, you know. You should invite no, me back. Oh, no, this would be a lot of fun I'd here to do another one in the future. This is obviously going up on YouTube. This is going up on the, uh, uh, like, on podcasts, on, like, Spotify, Apple, everything else. Uh, I will leave you all here. And, Marky, do you want to go ahead and plug yourself one more time before we go ahead and let you go? Absolutely. I am Animarchy History. You can find me on YouTube. I'm on TikTok occasionally, but... You'll most likely see me lurking around. If you want to get angry at me, you can find me on Twitter, where I start fights with people and share my opinions. <laughs> Send uh, me over your links to this, and honestly, I'll plug you in, a, in like the description with everything. 
Yeah, just put my let people find my Twitter on there, Ryan, because that's a, that's an adventure in in of itself. All right. Well then, we're gonna go ahead and let things go here. Everyone, thank you very much. I will see you all next time. Goodbye, my friends. Bye, guys. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.